0: so how long have you had it? A couple months. Okay. All right. So before I have a look at it, um, let me just ask you a few questions. Um, is it itchy? No. No. Okay. And did you have any trauma to the area?
1: Not that I can remember. just kind of showed up one day.
0: Oh, okay. All right. What, what concerned you about it?
1: I guess just that it kinda came out of nowhere.
0: Okay, alright. Um and since you have noticed it, has it gotten any bigger in size or changed no. in size at all? No, any bleeding from it at all?
1: No, nothing like that.
0: No. Okay, all right. Well let's have a look.
1: And scene.
0: So that's 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 how it would go.
1: Canadian Patient Safety Institute presents Patient. A nonfiction medical podcast. About the people trying to fix healthcare from the inside out. I'm your host, Jordan Blumen. I wanted to know what it's like to receive virtual care from a healthcare provider. And Dr. Collins, president of the Canadian Medical Association, was kind enough to humor me with that little bit of role playing. Are you sure?
0: No, no, that's okay. I don't, I'm not, I'm happy with, to do that.
1: She was very generous with her time. So why did we do this? I think you could fairly say that virtual care used to be a pretty niche topic in the world of healthcare. It was a niche topic in healthcare right up until March of 2020, when pretty much the whole world went into lockdown. It's a fun exercise. If you hop on Google Trends and you look up search interest in virtual care over time, you see consistently non-existent interest for the nearly 20 years that Google has been recording search sentiment. And then March, 2020, boom, it hits this historic peak. All at once, everyone was stuck inside, but they still needed to communicate with their healthcare providers. So that communication took the form that all other communication took, virtual. But it would be way too simple to chalk up virtual care as the Zoomification of healthcare. Virtual care raises questions about access and equity, about communication and technology, and the role that they play in our health. So we came up with some questions. The answers to which might provide a little clarity on where our healthcare is really going as our healthcare goes increasingly online. To answer those questions, we're going to be talking with Rashad Bayat, a family physician with extensive experience in virtual care, Sheila Maloney, Executive Vice President of Engagement and Marketing at Canada Health InfoWay, Eshared Shaduri, a senior healthcare consultant with over 30 years experience in education and research work in issues of diversity and equity, and Dr. Ann Collins, who we've met, president of the Canadian Medical Association. I wanted to know, what is virtual care? What's its history? What are the pitfalls? What are the opportunities? And most importantly, what does it mean for patients? Starting with Dr. Byatt, what is virtual care?
2: Uh, virtual care, in, in a way, is a term that um, has really sort of been uh, evolving from telehealth, telemedicine, incorporating aspects of digital health. But really, you know, if you, if you kind of start with um, I mean, what virtual care is, it's a very broad umbrella term. Uh, And it it overlaps, as I mentioned, with telehealth, telemedicine. But really, it means if you use, you know, a CMA, Canadian Medical Association definition that they've referred to in the past, it's any interaction between patients and or members of their circle of care occurring remotely using any forms of communication or information technology with the aim of maximizing the quality and effectiveness of patient care.
1: So as Rashad explained... While there's this newfound interest in the term and idea of virtual health, it's really just a continuation of this larger lineage of telehealth and telemedicine. And it really goes a lot deeper than just a doctor and a patient talking over Zoom or Skype, in the same way that our healthcare system encompasses a lot more than just a patient and a provider talking. To make care virtual, we have to make virtual the entire system of data and records, monitoring and intervention. Anne and Sheila explained it well.
3: You know, we've been at this for over 20 years now, and we started with building the basic infrastructure. So to get rid of paper and healthcare, so lab information systems, diagnostic imaging, uh, getting x-rays off paper and, and to digitize and that kind of thing. And so in getting physicians to adopt electronic medical records or EMRs in their offices. So we um, you know, while, you know, Rashad said virtual care might be a new term that we're using, we've certainly been in this business for a long time and telehealth has been, in fact, Canada is one of the leaders in telehealth. Um, We had 1.9 or 1.4 telehealth visits in 2019 alone across the country. We have a large remote rural population. So, you know, when when the whole virtual care and COVID came up, there was a significant shift, but this was a, a rapid shift, but we sort of like to think of it as the sprint within a, a marathon that's been going on in the virtual care digital health space.
1: Dr. Collins talked to me a little bit about what that looked like.
3: For example, if you'd had heart
0: surgery, were sent home, you would, the heart center would send along with you some sort of device whereby you could connect with people, in the few days after your surgery, to check in on your your vital signs, your your wounds, uh, and and so on. but but we didn't really ever move beyond that.
2: Let's go back to uh, just before the pandemic hit in March. And at, at that point, uh, virtual care uh, had, I would say, stalled a little bit in the public domain in Canada. And one of the big barriers as as uh, you may have heard, and as as Sheila knows is that um, the remuneration structures relating to virtual care were not um, present in many provinces in a very uh, broad um, capacity and so it was very challenging for clinicians in fee-for-service remuneration structures which covers Roughly 70% of the the physician population in Canada, uh, it was very difficult for them to be remunerated for services that were provided virtually, except in certain circumstances.
0: So the pandemic, virtually overnight, lifted all of that. Like the pandemic has done with a lot of things, things have happened a lot quickly in a lot of areas of our life than before. Things that were seen as obstacles, red tape, whatever you want to call it, seem to disappear.
1: So to shave off just a bunch of subtlety and nuance from all of this. For decades, Canada is kind of a leader in telehealth. But for some pretty complicated reasons, uh, the boundaries of what that entails are pretty narrow. Then, the pandemic hits, and necessity being the mother of invention, those boundaries expand rapidly. We have more people communicating with their healthcare providers over phone, text, email, or video call than ever before. And that's great, right? Because more people have access to healthcare. But it also raises two big questions in our attempt at understanding what virtual care means for patients. First, what medical issues actually lend themselves to this technology and which ones don't?
2: One of the the pitfalls and challenges is that, and most doctors know this intuitively, Um, Many patients uh, come to recognize recognize this or know it themselves intuitively as well that virtual care and virtual visits, whether it's telephone, video, text message, secure message, they're not ideal for every kind of clinical scenario. And and there are some clinical scenarios, you know, some medical issues that are, are better served by virtual than others. Some mental health issues can be very well uh, served by by virtual care and virtual methods. Uh, Some skin challenges, so dermatology problems, uh, some urinary tract uh, challenges, um, sinus and and upper respiratory issues. Um, So there are a number of examples uh, there. In addition, review of lab tests uh, is, is, I think Sheila may have mentioned this example. This is a great example. You know, uh, as Sheila said, you know, why, why do you have to travel into your doctor's office, spend in the old pre-pandemic days, you know, an hour in traffic there, an hour in traffic back, take half a day off work or a full day off work just to speak to the physician or nurse or whoever it is for five minutes about some test results that you could have done over the phone.
1: And the next question, is who gets to benefit from this? See, technological literacy becomes really, really important when we decide as a society that virtual care is a viable path for healthcare, or when we find ourselves in a situation where that decision is made for us. Sheila explained.
3: We did find that the biggest barrier from a patient perspective is digital health literacy. So 40 something percent of Canadians felt that they didn't necessarily have the tools that they needed um, to fully get the full advantage of a virtual experience. So for example, they might not understand the technology well enough. I don't the zoom thing. It kind of scares me. I don't know how to do it. or." Um, I don't understand the the health information, I, I'm not comfortable with the, the medical terminology to have a full understanding. So one of the things that we certainly found out from, from this COVID gave us good opportunity to find this out was that, again, people are... Uh, recognize the benefits. When you ask them right away, they see the convenience. But I would say that the biggest barrier, Jordan, is probably that, that, that literacy piece. And there's a need for Canadians and clinicians, frankly, some of them, um, to ensure that they've got the tools and the training they need to make sure that they have the optimum experience when they're do, having a virtual care visit.
1: This really important word came up at the end of our last section, this idea of access who gets to access healthcare, and how do they get to access it? And any discussion of access brings us to our last interview subject, Aisha Shaduri. A member of Patients for Patient Safety Canada, Aisha has spent her career studying and researching equity in healthcare and how to improve cultural competence of healthcare professionals. Virtual care is important, especially right now, in large part because it can help improve access to healthcare, but as Aisha explained to me, Access is not equity. We're going to chat a little bit more about that right after this break.
2: Silence can be confusing. During your virtual medical appointment, silence could indicate to your health provider that you have nothing to... Even if what you really want to say is... And... Oh, and... Always speak up, whether you are online or on a phone call. Conquer Silence for your health. This message brought to you by the Canadian Patient Safety Institute. ConquerSilence.ca
4: Jordan, I am a lifelong, almost lifelong now. I am a senior citizen now, uh, an equity analyst, and I have worked in all the different domains of government, the academia, the business, the industry. So my life has really being devoted to and really committed to this issue. As I see the thing, my perspective is on the equity, much more than, yes, virtual care is extremely efficient. I am not very sure about its effectiveness because it depends on who is the target, who are we addressing? Depending on that, I'll accept or not accept its effectiveness. But that brings into, in my mind, at least the equity that each one, every patient, that is our vision, right? I think therefore playing field is not even and unless the playing field is even, access is not enough. Right? Because we are, why I mentioned that it is in connection with the safety. And I think there are three E's, efficiency, effect, efficacy, and equity for patient safety to be comprehensive.
1: Efficiency, efficacy, and equity. Virtual care certainly makes some kinds of healthcare more efficient. It makes some, though as Rashad mentioned, not all more effective, but that still leaves this question of equity. Does it make our healthcare system more equitable? Aisha and I had a roughly hour and a half conversation on this topic, and we spoke at length about a lot of the same things we spoke with Anna, Rashad, and Sheila about what healthcare issues lend themselves well to virtual care, which don't, and really what virtual care is. But Aisha was particularly interested in what virtual care isn't, what it can't do, won't, and doesn't do. We've made quite a few episodes of this show, literally called Patient but I've never really interrogated who it is I picture when I picture a patient.
4: We seem to have a kind of an idea who the patient is. I mean, you know, millions of research studies on patient engagement, patient empowerment, what is the patient perspective, just like the word diversity, right? But I keep telling my friends, diversities are ours. We are all diverse, aren't we? I mean, whether it's democracy. Gender, our residence pattern, rural areas or urban areas, uh, the province, Alberta (laughs) or New Brunswick. And then it goes on and on and on. And then our context of our traditions, our values, our beliefs. And what is disappointing, that again I see this reference to patient as a monolithic, as a generic entity. Patients would, patients are, patients will. Which patients are we talking about?
1: Patients are not a monolith. And while a teleconference might be a great resource for people who are familiar and in possession with the technology, there are heaps of people who don't. While a digital conversation is great for a person who shares a cultural background with their healthcare provider and can easily communicate their health needs, it's not as good of a solution for someone who has a language or cultural barrier or frankly, who is subject to any of the innate biases that exist within the healthcare system, same as they do within any system?
4: I'm just thinking of many, many, many communities who are, um, you know, maybe uh, socioeconomically challenged or any other ways, I mean, there are so many communities you know, uh, physically challenged health-wise, are they going to wait till they're very sick? And then what do they do? Then virtual care is not there for them to help. Access cannot be, I mean, even if they're addressing inequalities and in access that cannot be mitigated unless we pay attention to this biases that are ingrained in our uh, mental models. In the larger society.
1: So, where exactly does that leave
2: us? Yeah, so uh, there's a few that come to mind. I think one is is a patient of mine who, um, you know, has really struggled with uh, mental health challenges and some addictions challenges as well. And you know, during the the pandemic, definitely we were we were checking in together. Um, initially via phone, uh, because that was the easiest modality at the time. But over time, uh, our clinic had introduced a, a video visit app into our workflow and, and we had been testing it out with with folks. And uh, this patient was became comfortable using the app. And I, I was really struck one day uh, when when we first connected by video after a few, actually probably a, a few weeks, maybe a month or two of, of connecting by phone, uh, the patient said, it's so great to see you, you know, and and, uh, just that additional little bit of the visual connection really, really helped. Um, And I was struck by that because there are a lot of um, Canadians who are struggling uh, during this time, Um, you know, just generally, but COVID has has, uh, really exacerbated mental health and and substance and, and addictions challenges. And You know, when you see that a particular aspect of technology can make a little bit of a difference, it really does uh, resonate. And, uh, you know, so that's one example that that really stood out to me and it just makes me and and other colleagues I know just want to work on making these processes easier for patients to use, easier for doctors to use. So it just becomes like an easy thing to do that's part of the default processes. An easy thing to do.
1: So. What can we say about virtual care? Virtual care, which is new, but also just another step in this long march of telemedicine, is full of opportunities. It can make our healthcare system more efficient, in some cases even safer. It can give more people access to those systems, which will improve outcomes. People struggling with mobility and mental health, it can be huge for them. But it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix the big issues that plague the healthcare system like they plague any system. It really just improves some people's ability in some instances to access certain parts of our healthcare system. But here's the thing, the thing missing in all of this analysis, regardless of all of that, you're still going to use it. Probably at some point because virtual care is useful and efficient. And useful, efficient things tend to really thrive in healthcare. So, the question for you, the question we'll wrap up with is how do you do virtual care well? How do you prepare for it? How do you stay safe?
0: It's like any new function. I think we have to educate ourselves as best we can. And there are resources there, both for physicians and for patients. CMA has put out a playbook on. Virtual care um, for for doctors and as well for patients in terms of how you uh, set up that interaction, um, that the patient understands and consents to the visit in whatever means that you're doing it, that they understand that it's not being recorded, for example. Um, and then from the patient side of things is, is to Put yourself in the best position that you can to, to make the most of the visit. I did some visits where there were dogs barking and, and children crying in the background that's, that are, distract. it's life, but it's distracting. Um, so you want to set up in an environment that's as quiet as possible, where, where you're able to tell your story um, in a confidential manner. Uh, probably not in the lineup. At Starbucks is a great place to do a virtual visit, in my view.
3: Understand where it makes sense to have a virtual visit and when you need that face-to-face.
4: So all that I am saying that of course virtual care is a major, major boon for us, major, major benefit for us. As long as we do not try to generalize it, saying that this is a you know be all and end all for all sort of all patients, and all sorts of safety situations.
1: Right now, you can find a virtual care toolkit at conquersilence.ca. There's virtual care checklists for patients, how to make the most of your visit infographics, and website manner, I like that, information for providers. All these tools are up now at conquersilence.ca. Thanks for listening.